1: Some Old Testament preaching in a New Testament context from Jesus himself. Next, on this edition of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry here on earth. And right from the start, he chooses an Old Testament passage to proclaim. This passage is marvelous to the point that it incites people who want to kill Jesus. So what's really going on? What is this passage in Isaiah all about? That'll be the subject of our time today here on Abounding Grace. Pastor Gary Wagner would refer us back to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, as well as passages out of Isaiah. Here's Pastor Gary now with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
0: At the very start of Jesus' ministry, he began a preaching tour through the region of Galilee, and he spent time in city after city after city throughout this region preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Whenever he would enter a city, he would go to the synagogue where a crowd of people had gathered to worship God. And as was the custom, visiting rabbis and others would stand and give their comments upon God's Word. The people now are in the midst of a worship service, a period of instruction in the Word of God in his hometown of Nazareth. They've already had prayer, they've already had their reading from the Torah, the law of God, they have already had a prayer of thanksgiving. And now Jesus steps up to the front of the gathering of the people right at this point. And the attendant of the synagogue hands, him, hands Jesus the scroll of the prophet. And Jesus begins to read from the prophet Isaiah. Notice in verse 16. He stood to read from his chosen passage of scripture. And then he sat down to preach, which was Jesus' custom. So Jesus read the text from Isaiah 61, and then from Isaiah 58, 6. And he read it in Hebrew, because that was the language the scroll was written in. And then he probably preached in Aramaic, as that was the predominant language of his hearers. And then Luke wrote it down in Greek, and now we have it in English. By God's singular care and providence, it has been kept pure from the moment it was spoken to the moment that you now have it in your English Bible. What you have in any accurate translation of the Bible is an inerrant rendering of what was originally spoken and what was originally written. Can you imagine that by God's care and providence in Hebrew, aramaic greek and now into english god has for two thousand years kept his word pure so that you can be assured that you have in your hands an accurate english translation the very infallible word of the living god well jesus picks a text from the old testament and then he preaches on it in the text that he chose was Isaiah 61. So let's turn back, if you will, to Isaiah 61, because we're going to spend quite a bit of time in that today. And I think you'll see that it will be well worth our time. As I have said before, it is important whenever you have an Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament to go back and study the entire passage out of the Old Testament. I think we can be very sure that that's what our New Testament writers expect us to do. Now, in Isaiah 61, Isaiah is prophesying about the restored condition of the church of God in the future. Isaiah prophesied about a lot of judgments to come upon his generation, but he also pronounced some thrilling prophecies about how wonderful the conditions would be for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future. And that is what he is addressing in Isaiah 61. In Isaiah 61, he describes the great person who was going to bring about these wonderful conditions for God. This great person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was going to bring a time of restoration, a time of joy, and a full-orbed salvation. Notice what it says about Jesus. In the first three verses, it gives us the qualifications, the missions, and the goal of the Messiah. It starts out by saying, the Spirit of God is upon me. This is the Son of God talking. The Messiah himself speaking here, and he says that the distinctive trait of my life is that the Spirit of God is upon me. I am. In am the anointed one, the Christ. And now remember, that's what happened at his baptism. He is saying, God has anointed me, and he has commissioned me, and he has equipped me for a very specific task. The goal of my ministry as the Messiah is to preach the gospel to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort those that mourn, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, do you know about this phrase, to proclaim liberty to the captives, which is taken actually from Leviticus 25 and is quoted again here in Isaiah and its relationship to the history of the United States? Verse 10 in Leviticus 25 says, we are to proclaim liberty throughout the land. And this is a verse that we should all, beloved, know and love as Americans. It goes all the way back to our nation's founding. It's written right across the Liberty Bell. And it symbolizes the freedom and the very essence of the existence of us as Americans... It is a call to proclaim liberty as defined by God in terms of God's word throughout all the land. That, beloved, is right across the liberty bell. And yet, we are consistently told by the revisionists that we're we're never decidedly a Christian nation. Hogwash. So here you have the mission Of the Messiah, to proclaim liberty to those who are captive, freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, what does that phrase mean, the acceptable year of the Lord? Well, that's probably what we're going to spend most of our time today looking at. But let's continue on just a bit further. Notice it says in verse 2 He is going to administer the visions of God upon his enemies. And he is going to, for, and he is going to come for all those who mourn. Verse three, when he comes, he is going to grant all those who mourn in Zion comfort, giving them a garland instead of ashes, transforming their life of mourning into one of joy. And then in verse four, he says that the effect of his coming is going to be a massive restoration of his church throughout all the world. That everything sin has ruined, the Lord Jesus Christ will rebuild and repair. He will rebuild the ancient ruins, raise up His church, the former devastations. They will rebuild the ruined cities and the desolation of many generations. And not only that, but if you'll notice down further, the nations will be converted and then... They will give the church their service and support. Nations once rebellious, nations once living in rebellion against God, will surrender to the Lord and live in terms of the Lord's will. Notice in verse 6, but ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, or nations. And in their glory shall ye boast yourselves, verse 9. And their offspring shall be known among the nations, yours and their descendants among the people. And then those last two verses of Isaiah 61 describe for us the condition of all true conditions. All members of the true church of Christ, which church is transnational in its membership, universal in its influence and its appreciation, no longer confined to a narrow segment of the human race in numbers and influence. It will instead be global in size and effect. So Isaiah rejoices in verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth bringeth forth her bud." And as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before nations." What a great chapter Isaiah 61 is. It speaks of a global renewal, a global restoration of the church, a rebuilding of everything that sin has destroyed, so that God's justice and God's praise springs up from all over the earth, from all of the nations of the world, beloved. And it is all accomplished by this one who is identified in Isaiah 61, as the one whom the Spirit of the Lord has come. Let's go back to verse 2 of Isaiah 61 and the phrase, to proclaim the acceptable or favorable year of the Lord, which Jesus ends his reading in Luke 4 with. He must have had some year in mind, the favorable year of the Lord. The text says that this would be the year that everyone's debt would be released. He talked about proclaiming liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners. This is the time that everyone who was oppressed will be delivered, where everyone who was afflicted will have liberty preached to them, where everyone who is mourning will rejoice and be comforted. And he is thinking of a very specific year that he calls The favorable year of the Lord. Now, that word favorable is an interesting word in Greek because it means the same thing that the Hebrew word meant back in Leviticus 25, where it talks about proclaiming the year of release. The year favorable, in its most literal sense, means to remove a debt. To have a debt paid and therefore to be looked upon with favor by the one to whom you paid the debt. So, a favorable year of the Lord is a year of release from debts. It's a year in which those to whom you were once indebted now look upon you with favor and approval. Now, does that not remind you of Leviticus 25? that I read earlier, it's supposed to, because what Isaiah is doing very self-consciously is making a prophecy about what the Lord Jesus Christ would do based upon this old piece of Mosaic legislation called the Jubilee year in Leviticus 25. This is deliberate on Isaiah's part. There are so many parallels. There are so many common words and ideas between Isaiah 61 and Leviticus 25 that this deliberateness cannot be dismissed. Turn back to Leviticus 25 and let us just notice a few of of the parallels. Isaiah speaks of a year that is favorable to the Lord when debts are released. Leviticus 25 talks about a year of release. Isaiah speaks about proclaiming, preaching liberty, preaching release throughout the land, and Leviticus in verse 10 speaks of liberty being proclaimed throughout the land. And as we look today a bit further at the other various provisions of the Jubilee year, you'll find even more similarities and more parallels, so it cannot be passed over. Isaiah had the Mosaic legislation in mind when he wrote chapter 61. And we cannot understand what the Messiah would come to do according to Isaiah unless we understand what the year of Jubilee is all about. So, let's talk about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. It came every 50th year. Did you know that every seventh year was important in the Hebrew calendar and the Old Testament? It was a sabbatical year. Every seventh year, you would release anyone from any debts they had with you, and you would rest for the whole year. You would work hard for six years, storing up, so that you would have enough food to eat during the year you weren't working. But you were instead rejoicing and praising God for His provision. Then not only was every seventh year a sabbatical year in which you would rest and enjoy and worship God for His abundance, but the fiftieth year was also a tremendously important year in the Hebrew calendar. So let's talk about the things that happened every fiftieth year. Why was it that every fiftieth year was such a major deal in Israel? Now, numbers, of course, had symbolic meaning in the Hebrew culture. Seven was a number for rest. Why? On the seventh day, God rested. Seven times seven, 49, is rest perfected, rest intensified, complete rest. So here you have seven periods of seven years, 49 years. Then the 50th year is the first year after seven years, seven periods of seven years. Now, follow me. So what is so important about that? Well, seven times seven means rest intensified. Remember that. Now, the first day of the month and the first day of a new year in the Hebrew calendar also has a symbolic meaning. It was a symbol of a new beginning, a new day, a new era. Newness came with the number one, like the first day of the week, in a new week. So here you had the 50th year, the first year after seven periods of seven years, symbolizing newness. There is a new day coming, a new time, a new order that is about to take place in Israel. And then when the 50th year took place, One of the priests took Abraham's horn and blew a mighty blast announcing that this new era had finally arrived. That which they had been looking forward to and planning for has now come. And a blast of the ram's horn gives testimony to the fact announcing a new year. A time of celebration and rest and worship of the Lord has now come. And it's interesting to note that ram's horns were used to announce the celebration of the inauguration of a king. Just after a king was sworn into office to begin the celebration, there would be a blast from a ram's horn, which is the perfect picture, as we're going to see later on, of a great new era of rejoicing and jubilee that we as Christians enjoy in Christ, which began when the Lord Jesus Christ was inaugurated as king at his resurrection. So the ram's horn is blown. Then in Leviticus 25, it says that there was a specific day of a specific month in which the year jubilee began. That specific day of a specific month was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. This great time of newness, of refreshment, of renewal, of restoration, this year of worship and spiritual adoration of God and all of the blessings it entail began on the day of atonement. Another very wonderful symbolic act that all of the blessings we have from God, any spiritual renew, any rest, any fellowship, any abundance of gifts that God gives us, we have not because of any worth or merit on our part but solely because of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us, that in Him He may give us all things, having given up His Son in atonement now, Now there is a basis upon which God can pour out all of His blessings upon us. And so this great year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement to symbolize, listen, to symbolize that all we have good and new and fresh in this life is because of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great symbolic act. Now, there was another provision of the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, any property that had been sold during the previous 49 years had to be returned to its original owner. Remember, when the Israelites conquered the land, it was distributed by God's sovereignty to the various tribes or families of Israel. The land belonged to the Lord to give to whom whoever he wished, and therefore it could not be sold to another party Forever. So if an Israelite got into financial trouble at some time during the 50 years and he had to sell off his property in order to pay his debt, then when the 50th year rolled around, any property that had been sold had to be returned to its original owner. Now, what does that symbolize? This symbolizes the restoration of the earth to its rightful owners, beloved. The land of Canaan belonged to those to whom God had assigned it, and it could not be alienated. It could not be alienated from the family for more than fifty years. It had to be returned on the year of jubilee, just as the earth, the Lord that belongs to the to the land, the, that belongs to the people of God, may slip out of their hands because of apostasy because of negligence, because God may take it out of their hands in judgment, but eventually this earth that God has promised to his people will be be returned to them because the meek shall inherit the earth. Those who belong to God, those who have been tamed by God and are submissive to him will inherit the earth. And the earth, which is now in the hands of evil men and evil women, will be returned to its rightful owners, its original owners, the covenant people of God, those who belong to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I, beloved. Something else took place in the year of Jubilee, and that is all Jewish slaves had to be released from their obligations. There was a law in the Hebrew culture that if you were in financial bondage and had nothing to give your creditors, you could sell your labor to your creditor as indentured servants. This is the way by which many of our founding fathers came to this country. They would sell their services to someone to buy a a ticket to come to this land. We call it slavery, and that has all kinds of negative connotations to it. But it is biblical slavery nonetheless, indentured servanthood. If you had a debt with someone to pay it off, you could sell your labor to them for a specific period of time. Whatever time was agreed upon by both parties to pay off the debt. As a result, some Jewish people who got themselves into financial trouble would sell themselves into slavery for a period of time. But every 50 years, all Jewish slaves had to be released from indentured servitude. So the year year of Jubilee was a time of liberty from slavery. It was a time in which people who were enslaved were set free, and that is why the Lord Jesus Christ, as you can see in Isaiah 61, describes His ministry as a setting free of those who were enslaved.
1: Eight eight six six five six zero seven. That's four oh eight eight six six five six oh seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB, that stands for Post Mailbox, Box, number four oh two, fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two.